Heavenly Father, you are a great God, and we thank you for allowing us to be able to come together. And right now, Lord, I just pray that you will remove any and all distractions from us. I pray that you will help us to come eager and ready to hear from your word. And I pray, Father, that you will just allow your word to go forth with great power. Lord, you are an amazing God, and I I know that you can speak through a donkey, so I have confidence that you could even work through me. And so, Lord, may you just do a great work. May you allow the proclamation of your word to be clear and bold, and, and Lord, may it have its desired impact that we might be changed and conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So we come to you this morning asking you to do a great work, and we do this in Christ's precious name. Amen. You know, you and I find ourselves living in a day and age where information is extremely accessible, more so than it ever has been in the, the history of all mankind. So unless you live in the Boldy household and you are under the age of 18 or over the age of 55, don't want to throw my mom under the bus and let you know how old she is, um, you know, the majority of you carry around a device, maybe like this, some of yours are much bigger, I don't have any, you know any concerns with that, but this is all I need. But, you know, we have this device available to us to where we have access to so much information, so much information that we couldn't possibly, in all of our years, take all of that information and and do anything with it that would be of any value. There's just too much to go through. Gone are the days where we had to, I mean, does anybody remember having to go down to the library and do research? You know, actually have to look on microfilm and and do some things to where you could actually look at things. Now, you just click a button. You don't even have to leave your home. And you you have all of this information sitting right at your fingertips. Um, Again, we we have so much before us. And and many in our culture simply pull these devices out and, and just have access within seconds to a plethora of facts and information. And it's right there at their fingertips. But here's the thing. Not all information is created equally. I hate to break this to some of you, and this may pop your bubbles right here, but here's, here's a little tidbit of truth. Just because you find something on the Internet doesn't mean it's true. All right? Just because you find something on the Internet, oh, yeah, I saw on the Internet that uh, this and this is happening. Okay. It just doesn't mean that it's true because you find it on the internet. There is a lot of information. There is a lot of wrong information out there. There's a lot of bad information out there. And so you and I have to sift through this information overload, and and we have to determine if the information in the Bible is is true, whether that information is, is accurate or not. But not only that, but then we have to determine what information is even relevant I mean, with all of that information, what really matters? What's really relevant with everything that we're, we're kind of going through? I mean, you know, I tend to be a minimalist to some degree. You know, I tend not to get bogged down with a, a lot of little facts and, and tidbits. And, and in some ways, that's good. In some ways, it's not. But, you know, I, I tend to be a bottom line guy. And I, and I don't care a whole lot about trivial facts and, and information. You know, that's why shows like Jeopardy and, and stuff like that, my mom loves them, but, you know, I, I, they don't do anything for me. I, I, I don't really care the answer to some of those questions. I mean, let's just, let's just take a look at a couple questions. Just, just. 
I mean, how are, the, how are the answers to these questions going to really change the world? Okay. After England, more Shakespeare plays set in, are set in this present day country than in any other. Anybody know? Anybody care? <laughs> Italy. All right. All right. Aristotle said that an ancient Athenian law made uprooting one of these trees punishable by death. Any guesses? Anybody caring? <laughs> an olive tree. An olive tree. I mean, here's the thing. Contrary to popular belief, it is possible to function in this world without knowing the answer to these questions. You, you're okay. If you didn't know the answer to those questions, you're, you're okay. All right? You can get on. You can have a, a healthy, successful life. If you knew the answer to those questions, congratulations. Be warm and filled. Conquer and multiply. Take over. All right? I mean, knowing pointless trivia may help you to do well in a, in a, in a game show like Jeopardy, but really it, it'll do little to aid you in living your life for Jesus. But unless you think that I somehow have something against Jeopardy, let me just stress a, a, a few more non-Jeopardy facts that um, you know, may or may not be of interest to you, but the, hopefully um, you'll begin to see the point I'm trying to make is there's a lot of information out there. And all this stuff I was taking off the Internet, so I'm not going to validate whether they're true or not. I didn't research them or validate them. So these could be totally erroneous, and I could be a total fool up here. But here, here we go. These are some interesting facts that we could get on the Internet. Did you know that dreamt is the only English word that ends in the letters MT? Did you know that? Now, again, this does not take into consideration the derivatives, of course, like daydreamt, outdreamt, redreamt, and undreamt. But dreamt is the only English word that ends in MT. Here's another little interesting fact. A dime has 118 ridges around the edge. A quarter has 119, in case you're just kind of wondering. I wonder how many a quarter has. 119. Oh, here's here's a great one. (laughs) Movie popcorn costs more per ounce than filet mignon. Now think about that the next time you go to the movie theater. That, that one might actually be useful right there. That might actually be something. Oh, here, here's one. And again, I, I promise I'm not making this up. This is, this is what's out there. <laughs> Sorry. When two white-faced capuchin monkeys meet, they say hello by sticking their fingers into each other's noses. I did not know that before. Now, now I do. Here's one. Sea otters hold hands when they sleep so they don't drift apart. Now, I wish I could show you that picture because the picture was so cute. These little sea otters were just holding hands and it was precious, totally useless, but it was a precious precious picture. And here's the last one. The tongue twister, sixth sick sheiks, sixth sheep's sick is believed to be the toughest tongue twister in the English language. And you doubt me, try saying that three times fast. That is not, even saying it once very slowly like that was, I'm, I'm not the best speaker, so there you go. I could use the rest of our time together giving you 
lots of useless information. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's out there. But none of this information is going to help you to live your life in such a way as to bring glory to Christ. I trust that none of you came here this morning wanting to hear a bunch of useless facts. I trust that you came here this morning to hear something that will benefit you not only in this life, but also in the life to come. I I trust that you came to not have your ears tickled with trivial pursuits, but rather to accept and to obey God's truth as he's revealed it to us in his word. I trust that you came here this morning eager and ready to hear anything and everything that God has to say about how he wants you to live. As I've said, we live in a day and an age whereby information is, is not lacking, but the ability to, to discern between the necessary and the unnecessary, the helpful and the unhelpful, well, this oftentimes is difficult. And oftentimes it's difficult even amongst us that are here within the church. Brothers and sisters, let us come together this morning. It is my prayer that we will come together this morning with hearts that are not merely eager to hear some interesting fact from God's word, but rather let us come this morning eager to apply God's truth to our lives such that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, according to Ephesians 4.1. Our text this morning is found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 to be specific. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. You know, I love this text because in this text we find a call to action. And this call to action is a call that finds its power and its motivation firmly planted in the rich soil of the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews calls each of us to act upon the great doctrinal truths that he has been proclaiming over the last few chapters. And again, going back to the scripture that we opened up with this morning in our scripture reading, going back to that section, there, that's like the beginning. And then this, the text we're going to look at t- today is kind of the, the wrapping up of that section. And all the way in between there, there's all this rich doctrine about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done and how he's superior to those that have gone before him and anybody that's going to come after him. Just making a case for just rich doctrine. And again, once, once again, reminding us that doctrine is not some cold and, and unnecessary thing to be avoided. On the contrary, the New Testament writers are consistently showing us how right living flows out of right doctrine. So if you and I want to live right, then we need to make sure that we are intaking the right doctrine, that we are thinking rightly about who God is and who we are to to be in light of what he's done for us. We need to make that connection because, again, this is important. And so in our passage, we're challenged to be a people that not only know about the appointment and the work of Jesus Christ as high priest, a point that, again, our author began all the way back in Hebrews 4.14 and continues all the way up to where we're going to be today, but now gives us a call to act upon this truth. So again, the the author doesn't want us to just be hearers of great doctrine. No, he wants us to be people who act in light of this great doctrine. He wants us to do something with this information that we're giving. This truth is not cold and indifferent. It is life-altering to those who have ears to hear. So based on the access that we now have to God 
Because of the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ, the author exhorts each of us to live in light of these truths such that our lives would show that we are no longer living for ourselves, but rather for the one who has provided a new and living way for us to be reconciled with our Heavenly Father. So follow along with me as we read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, in our text, the author offers us three exhortations. He says, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us stimulate or provoke one another. But before we're given the basis for these exhortations, before we get these exhortations, we're given the the groundwork as to what is to drive these exhortations, how we can then kind of move forward, the reasons why we are to do these things. Let's look at the first reason offered in verses 19 through 20. It says, Therefore, brethren, since or because we have confidence to enter in the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. We see the first thing here. The book of Hebrews, if we know anything about it, we know that it is a book that is full of Old Testament imagery and Jewish rituals. And that's why many people believe that this, this letter was written to Jewish Christians. There's a lot of Old Testament references, a lot of Old Testament imagery. And so, again, the the common thought out there is that Jewish Christians were the people who received this. Things like the holy place would have stirred images in their mind. It would have have brought things to mind of of the priests that would daily enter into the holy place to to burn incense. The holy place was a place that was associated with the, the sacrificial system that God instituted for the nation of Israel, and it was reserved for the, the priests that God had set apart through the line of Aaron and his sons and all of their descendants. But notice that in our text, it is said that we are now able to enter into this holy place. It's important to note that the writer is not talking about us entering to the physical holy place of the temple that would not be something that would be possible. Instead, he's letting us know that we now have the ability, like the priests of old, to enter into the presence of God. And we can do this with confidence. This is not something that we have to kind of approach tentatively. This is not something that we kind of have to meekly come into. This is something that we can do with boldness and with confidence. We don't have to act like we don't belong there. When we come into God's presence, when we go to him in prayer, we don't have to act like, God, I don't belong here. No, we are to approach God with confidence. Think of it like this. You buy tickets to an event, and there's assigned seating. So you've bought your ticket, 
and you have it, whether it's the, the theater or the sporting event, I'm going to let you decide because I don't want to say it's a sporting event because you ladies will tune out and you, you don't want to have anything to do with it. And I don't want to say it's a theater because you guys would say, I'm not going there. I don't care less where I sit. All right, so you pick the arena, whatever it is, but you've bought a ticket to go somewhere. And the seats, the seats are assigned, and you have your ticket, and you show up, and this is a packed-out place. There are people sitting all over the place. It's, it's jam-packed, wall-to-wall people, and you find your spot. And, you know, it's a beautiful spot. It's, it's front and center. Uh, you paid good money for it, so you have that ticket, and you go to your spot. But you get there, and somebody is sitting in your seat. So you double check the ticket. You make sure you know. I, I maybe I messed up. Maybe I maybe this isn't. No, that's the seat. Maybe it, maybe I came on the wrong day. No, no, this is the right day. I have my ticket. It's it's all right here. The date on the ticket's right. So so what do you do? You know, you've checked it all out. It, it it's clearly your seat on that day. You bought it. It's yours. So what do you do? Do you resign yourself to go into the cheap seats where you're going to need an oxygen mask and some high-powered binoculars? Hardly. You have your ticket. That's your seat. My guess is you would kindly, I hope, you would kindly yet confidently let the person know that they are sitting in your seat. Then, once they got up and, and they went to the seat that they had purchased, you know, the one where you need the oxygen mask and the high-powered binoculars to see everything, you would then enjoy the event by sitting down in your seat. Why? Because that's your seat. You belong there. You're not like that person who had to move. They were somewhere where they didn't belong. You were going where you belonged. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to us. We belong in the holy place that was once reserved for Aaron and his descendants. But get this, this is not something that is made possible by our own doing. Unlike the, the, the ticket situation in our, in our um, illustration, we have not purchased or earned this right. Now, we do not enter this holy place in the arrogance of our own works. No, this is something that is only made possible, our text tells us, by the blood of Jesus. It is by the blood of Jesus that we confidently enter into the presence of God. And because of that, brothers and sisters, we enter with this confidence. And it is a humble confidence, but it is a confidence nonetheless. And it is full of gratitude for the grace and for the mercy that God has shown us in His Son. It's a confidence that is grounded in, according to verse 20, a new and living way which he, Jesus, inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And it is a new way in that it is no longer required that we adhere to the old sacrificial system. What had at one point in time been unavailable to us is now made available. What it had once been shut to us has swung wide open to whoever believes. We can now approach God not through the priest's continuous offerings of goats and bulls, but rather by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this new way is living because it is rooted in the perfect person of Jesus Christ, the one who is risen from the dead, according to 2 Timothy 2.8. 
As one commentator so aptly puts it, the way into God's presence, therefore, is no longer characterized by death, but by following the path of the living one. Without question, the death of Jesus was a necessary element of this new and living way. Without the death of Christ, there would be no sacrifice for sins. And without a sacrifice for sins, no one could be saved. Without the death of Jesus, there would be no resurrection. And without the resurrection, whom could there possibly be to initiate our entrance into the presence of God? The truth be told, apart from Christ making this new and living way, you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. Left to forge our, 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 our own way, we would be destined to suffer an eternity in hell. We would stand before God rightfully condemned in his holy and just presence. But brothers and sisters, our text this morning tells us that Jesus has ushered in a new and living way. And it's a way he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. The veil would have reminded the original recipients of this letter of the, the Holy of Holies. Uh, the place where in the temple where the, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was a place that only the high priest was allowed to enter into so as to um, commune with God. It's, it's where he would meet God once a year and offer sacrifices, uh, not only on behalf of the people, but also for himself. But even then, this took place, this was an event that took place only once a year. And only the high priest and the high priest alone was the one who was, entered in, who was able to get behind that veil. The veil created a separation between the holy place that was frequented daily by the other priests and the holy of holies that was only visited once a year by the high priest. This reflected the vast chasm that existed between a holy God and sinful man. A holiness that is so far apart that God only allowed one man once a year to come into his presence to intercede on behalf of the people. But you know, something interesting happened as Jesus hung on the cross and finally died. According to Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 38, we're told this, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, the veil that once had to be passed through by the high priest each year is torn from top down at the death of Jesus. The way that was once restricted is now opened up because of what Jesus did on the cross. As a result, you and I are now able, into, able to enter into the presence of God through Christ's sacrificial death. And get this, this is the amazing thing. God didn't have to do that. This is all of grace. In his grace and in his mercy, God chose to do this for you and me. God chose to swing open that door so that we could enter into his presence as sons and daughters. He didn't have to. And yet he chose to. This now brings us to the second reason as to why the author exhorts us to draw near, to hold fast, and to stimulate or provoke one another. It's found in verse 21, and it says this, And since, or because, we have a great priest over the house of God. 
in a systematic theology book that also functions very nicely as a doorstopper. I'd like to share with you that. Wayne Grudem offers some insight into the function of a priest. He writes this, In the Old Testament, the priests were appointed by God to offer sacrifices. They also offered prayers and praise to God on behalf of the people. In so doing, they sanctified the people or made them acceptable to come into God's presence, albeit in a limited way during the Old Testament period. In the New Testament, Jesus becomes our great high priest. John Frame, in his equally thick systematic theology doorstopper, also writes this. His is a little shorter, but he writes this. We can summarize the duties of a priest in two categories, sacrifice and intercession. So again, remember how I told you when we first started leading up to our text, the author of Hebrews is writing, and he's writing a lot of rich doctrine. He's sharing a lot of great truths about who Jesus is and what he's done. Well, again, leading up to our text, the author of Hebrews puts Jesus forward as the great high priest. Throughout the letter, he's reminding us of of the many different things that make Jesus better and superior to all of the priests of the old covenant. In regards to the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice, he writes in Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, he says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice, he's speaking of Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You see, Jesus is better than all of the other priests that have gone before him. The other priests had to continually offer sacrifices. We're told here that Jesus had to do this offering once, and it was done. In regards to the supremacy of Christ's intercession, he writes in, the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, he says this, the former priests, on the, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they, they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, when it comes to intercession, when it comes to holding up us and and bringing us before God, God, Jesus has done this better than any priest that has gone before him. The other priest would die off. They couldn't keep doing it. But Jesus, who conquered death, who is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, he is, according to the Scriptures, interceding on our behalf right now. He lives to make intercession for us. Without question, Jesus has done for you and I what no other priest could ever do. He has set himself apart as the great priest. He has offered the perfect sacrifice himself. And he is constantly interceding on our behalf with an empathy and compassion that cannot be found in anyone else. All throughout Scripture, we're reminded of the compassion that Jesus has for for lost people and for people like you and I that are prone to wander. He's moved with compassion for us. 
And he understands how difficult it is to live in this broken world. And so he goes to the Father and he intercedes for us. So now with this as our basis, because we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and because we have a great priest over the house of God, the author of Hebrews now gives us our call to action. He now says, because of all of this, because of all of these things, because of this great doctrine, because of these great truths, now I want to call you to action. I want to call you to live differently. I want to call you to be something completely different than who you were before. The doctrine is laid out before us. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to treat it like a meaningless piece of trivia? That's nice. Not going to really think much about it. Or are we going to allow it to have its attended effect? And this is really where the rubber meets the road for us as Christians, is it not, brothers and sisters? This is what helps to gauge how we're progressing in our grasp of the biblical truths that God has given to us right here in his word. As those that have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son, the author of Hebrews exhorts us in three different ways. Let's begin by looking at his first exhortation that's found in verse 22. He says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. That sounds like such an easy thing to do, doesn't it? I mean, especially in light of what we've been covering this morning. And yet... If you and I were to be honest with ourselves, we would have to confess that this is not as easy as it sounds. No matter where you and I may, may find ourselves on the spiritual maturity spectrum, we find ourselves in a battle, do we not? And Paul David Tripp is spot on when he writes these words. He says, There is a war out there. It is being fought on the turf of your heart. It is fought for the control of your soul. Each situation you face today is a skirmish in the war. Be careful. Be aware of the battle. Don't forget that there is a scheming enemy out there who is out to deceive, divide, and destroy. Go out knowing that to win you must fight. You must not relax. You must not forget. See, the problem with many of us is that we suffer from spiritual amnesia. We forget all that Christ has done to make a way for our sins to be forgiven. We forget that what the culture is trying to offer us isn't all that it's cracked up to be. We forget that God is enough. And so our hearts wander and we wonder why God seems so far away. Brothers and sisters, can I call you back? Can I encourage you to be real with God and to confess any waywardness that may be taking place in your heart? Can I challenge you to some some clear-headed thinking about your faith? In Hebrews 11, 6, we're told this, And without faith, 
it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You see, there's no fooling God. He knows our every thought. He knows our every deed. So let's not play any games with him. If your heart's not in the right place, he knows. If you love the things of this world more than you love him, he knows. Don't toy around with God. Instead, do what the author's calling us to do. Draw near to him with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Cry out to him and experience the blessing of his grace and mercy. Taste and see that the Lord is good and have your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your body washed with pure water. This is what God does in the lives of those who come to him in faith, those who come to him with a sincere heart. He takes our sin and he removes it from us as far as the east is from the west, according to Psalm 103.12. He cleanses us and allows us to enter into his presence. We stand before him spotless and without blemish because we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And these truths move us to draw near to God, not to run away from him. Let us draw near to this great and glorious and merciful God. And having just exhorted his readers to draw near, the author of Hebrews is now ready to give the second exhortation. He does this in verse 23. He writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, you and I find ourselves living in a day and age whereby the idea of persevering seems to have fallen on hard times. The idea of holding fast to something is no longer seen as a virtue. It's no longer in vogue. It's no longer all that necessary. We see this play out in a variety of spheres, do we not? But let's take marriage as one of the ways in which this plays out. You know, once upon a time, people used to take their marriage vows pretty seriously. There was a time in our country when people got married and they they made these vows to one another and they spoke were certain words to one another, they were genuine in their speech and they meant what they said. I mean, they generally meant it when they said, I so-and-so take you so-and-so to be my lawfully wedded spouse, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And a lot of people nowadays will still say those things, but really, they'll, they'll not really mean it, especially that till death do us part. What they really mean is until I'm done with you and until I find somebody else who I think is better. This idea of persevering, this idea of holding to those vows, this idea of protecting the marriage and guarding it, it's gone by the wayside. There's no, there's no holding fast. There's no perseverance. The divorce rate continues to hover at about 50%. And that doesn't even take into consideration those that are opting to not even get married at all because they're just living together. Again, the concept of holding fast to marriage is not all that common anymore. And in some circles, it's getting harder and harder to find, to find a couple that stayed married for more than 25 years. 
But marriage is not the only thing that people have a hard time holding fast to. The same could be said for a number of things. Really, anything that finds us coming up against obstacles and challenges that make the task difficult. We love our comfort. We want what we want. And we don't want anybody telling us anything differently. And so again, this idea of sticking it out, of working through it, of overcoming these obstacles, it's really not very prevalent in our culture anymore. At least not towards anything spiritual, anything that matters. See, the author of Hebrews felt the need to exhort his readers to hold fast to the confession of their hope without wavering. But let me ask you, are you in any danger of loosening your grip on the confession of your faith? The culture we find ourselves living in is becoming more and more hostile to the gospel. No longer is it socially acceptable to be deemed and labeled as a Christian. At one point in time in our culture, it was, it was good. It was seen as a positive. That is not the case anymore. It is costing us something to follow Christ now and the culture that we are living in is not embracing it. Are you tempted to loosen your hold on being a follower of Christ? Are you finding yourself becoming less vocal about what the Bible has to say about certain issues out of fear, about what others might think? Brothers and sisters, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us be willing to unashamedly stand where the scriptures call us to stand, regardless of how we may be viewed within the culture. Let us find comfort and peace in the fact that he who promised is faithful. Right? Amen? Is God faithful? Does God do what he says he's going to do? Can we trust him? Well, the writer of Hebrews seemed to think so, and he says, listen, based on who God is, based on the fact that he who promised is faithful, you need to hold fast. Romans eight thirty one through 32 offers us some additional support for that. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You and I will hold fast to a confession, to the confession of our hope if we are firmly convinced that the object of our hope is worth it. If we're firmly convinced that what the scriptures tell us about Jesus is true, then how or why would we waver? Again, the problem is we're not convinced. We're not willing to hold fast. The world is offering us something that we deem to be better. It's been a long time since Jesus walked on this earth. Is it true that he's coming back? The scriptures tell us he is. So let us not be taken off course by a culture that does not approve of our message. As I've said, we're living in a world that is becoming more and more Hostile to the gospel, which you've not, we shouldn't be surprised by this, should we? I mean, God's word has told us this is what's going to happen. This shouldn't catch any of us off guard. 
2 Timothy 3, 13 through 14, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, his child in the faith, he says this, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Our hope, brothers and sisters, needs to be firmly planted in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ. We must hold fast to the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through Him. We must continue to confess that there is salvation in no one but Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which which we must be saved. God will do everything that He promised to do. He's a promise-keeping God. So hold fast to the confession of of your faith, of your hope, because God is faithful. And here's the thing. He may not do what you want when you want Him to. He doesn't promise you that He's going to do that. But He will do that which is for your good and for His glory. And we can find great courage and confidence in that. Even living in a culture that is becoming more and more hostile to this gospel message. Even when people will call us narrow-minded, bigoted, simple thinking, whatever they want to label us, and we'll be called a lot. But we have to hold fast to the confession of our hope. We, We must rest in who God is and the fact that He is a faithful God. So having exhorted us to draw near and to hold fast, the author of Hebrews is ready to roll out his third and final exhortation, and it's found in verses 24 and 25. He writes this, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Many people approach the Christian life in a, in a very me-centered way. I mean, in, in their minds, it's simply me and God. That's, that's, that's all they need to concern themselves with, so they think. In actuality, though, the Christian life, if we were to look at it biblically, scripturally, the Christian life is, is really we-centered. Instead of being me and God, it's really more like we and God. The Bible knows nothing of a solitary Christianity. Throughout the scriptures, we find the Christian life not, not taking place within a vacuum, but rather within a community. This is why we find so many one another passages in the Bible. I won't read them all, but let me offer you a sampling of what you can find. And don't try to write them down because I'm going to kind of do them rapid fire. You can write the references, but just listen to the one another's that we are called to practice. Mark 9.50, be at peace with one another. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Romans 15.7, accept one another as Christ accepted you. Romans 15.14, admonish or counsel one another. 1 Corinthians 6.7, do not have lawsuits with one another. Galatians 5.13, serve one another through love. Galatians 5.26, do not challenge or envy one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. Forgive one another as the Lord forgave you. Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another in love. Philippians 2.3, regard one another as more important than yourself. 
Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another. Colossians 3.13. Bear with one another. 1 Thessalonians 3.12. Abound in love for one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. We do that to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Seek that which is good for one another. Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another daily. James 5.19. Do not complain against one another. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. 1 Peter 5.5, clothe yourselves with humility to one another. And there's 20 others that call us to love one another. This is what we are called to do, biblically, scripturally. This is how the Christian life is to take place. These commands show us the high priority that we are to place on one another. In our text, we're told to consider how to stimulate or, or provoke one another to love and good deeds. This is something that will not just happen. That is why we're called to consider, to, to think of ways in which we can do this. And God actually gives us a good starting point, does he not, in the list that I just read to you? We have a good list to go to and to start practicing with one another. But God wants us to think beyond that too. He wants us to consider how we can provoke one another onto love and good deeds. And there are a myriad of ways in which we can do that. God actually wants us to use our minds to think up ways of how we can positively provoke one another. And you know, you and I don't usually think of that word provoke as being a positive thing. If anything, we see it as a negative. Like you're provoking me. Well, there is a good side to being provoked. Biblically here in our text, right? Provoking can be a good thing, and it's a good thing in this context because you are trying to provoke somebody, to spur somebody on, to prod them to love and good deeds. So in our text, we're offered a what not to do as well as a what to do. So let's begin with the what not to do if we're to provoke one another on to love and good deeds. We're told that we must not forsake our own assembling together. You know, here's an interesting thing about the practicing of the one another's. You can't really do them if there's no others around. Very insightful. You can't really do them if other people aren't there to do them on. The whole idea of doing things to and for one another requires that we be around each other. Brothers and sisters, can I speak candidly with you for a moment? This is an area of our church that I'm, I'm truly concerned with. Far too many of you forsake our own assembling together. For you, church is not a real priority. You'll come as long as it's convenient for you, as long as you don't have a better offer waiting, as long as you don't have a sporting event to get off to or something else to do. You'll, you'll show up to activities as long as there's not a better offer out there. I think as a body, we are in danger of forsaking the gathering together, our assembling together, because we're so busy chasing after so many other things that this time together right here in the teaching and the preaching of God's word, it's pushed aside by other things that in and of themselves may not be sinful, but they're getting in the way of this of us being fed, of us being encouraged, 
of us being around one another, that we might encourage and provoke each other onto love and good deeds. That's why we are not to forsake the gathering together. If we fail to come together or we keep each other at a distance so as to not get too close, we are neglecting our assembling together. Don't let this be a habit of yours. I assure you, nothing good will come of it. You, personally will not be benefited because you will miss out on being provoked to loving good deeds and other people in the body will miss out because you will not be here to provoke them in a positive sense, of course. As one commentator put it, the New Testament lends no support to the idea of lone Christians. Close and regular fellowship with other believers is not just a nice idea, but an absolute necessity for the encouragement of Christian values. Having told us what we are not to do, the author now goes on to tell us what we are to do in our efforts to provoke one another to love and good deeds. He exhorts us to encourage one another. Encourage one another. This is not something that can take place in isolation again. It requires a life-on-life encounter. It's hard for me to encourage you if I have no idea what you're doing or if I never see you. If there's no interaction or contact between us, uh, it's it's going to be hard for me to know how I can encourage you, and the same is going to be true for you of me. God is calling us to be a people that provoke one another to love and good deeds, and we can't do this if we're not around. And we can't do this if we're not involved in each other's lives. It takes work. It takes work to consider just how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, and yet it is a work that will yield much fruit in the lives of those who practice these things. Our text this morning ends with these words, and we'll wrap it up here. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. This is it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back in the not-too-distant future. He might come back right now. Or maybe now. I'm obviously not a prophet. But here's the thing. You and I need to live as if he were coming back right now. We don't know the day. We don't know when he's going to return. Generations before us have lived as if he was going to return in their lifetime. But they lived in light of that. They were eager for Jesus to come back. But regardless of when he comes back, God is calling us to live in light of his return. And so I ask you, if Jesus were to return right now, would you be ready? Would you be ready? Are you drawing near? Are you holding fast? And are you provoking one another to love and good deeds? If not, why not? Let me encourage you to take some time this week to read through Hebrews 4.14 through 10.25, to just take all of that in, to, to download all of that rich doctrine, showing you the supremacy of Christ and his superiority as the, the great priest that has now made a way for us, a new and living way for us to come into God's presence. Read all of that so that you can get a solid grasp of of this rich doctrine. And, And I pray that it would stir your soul and challenge you to truly take these exhortations to heart. This is what it is to be in the body of Christ. 
This is how we are to live. In light of what Jesus has done, let us be a people who put these things into practice. Let us, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And let us provoke one another to love and good deeds.